Hey guys, welcome to the Columbia View Church podcast. We're excited to share God's word with you. If you'd like to get more connected here at Columbia View Church, please visit our website at www.columbiaview.org. Our Sunday morning worship time is 10 a.m. We are meeting on site now and following the social distancing guidelines put forth by our state. And we love the opportunity to, to meet you in person, and we hope that you are blessed by this word today. Time, we are so excited, so excited for what Jesus has done. This morning, we actually turned to the climax of a series we've been in called Finding the Way. And as this morning is the resurrection of Jesus, we look to this, this last theme of finding our way, the theme of hope. Now, it seems like our world, in a lot of ways, has really lost the value and diluted the meaning of this word, hope. You hear people say things like, man, I hoped for that, or I hoped in that, but what I hoped for and hoped in never really turned out the way I had hoped. Picture this um, on the screen right now. It's a picture of my family. We went on a hike. Raise your hands if you enjoy getting out in good old mother nature out in the forest going hiking. All three of you, okay. Okay, there's a few more of you. Jenna, you're, you're one of my people. So my family, we hit up uh, Silver Falls. Raise your hands if you've gone to Silver Falls before in Silverton. Okay, man, more hands came up. All right, okay, I, I see you. Um, we went to Silver Falls back in February, and as you see on that picture, there was a ton of ice. It was so beautiful. It was incredible. I've never seen it like that before. But when we went on this hike, we hoped to go hike all the trails to see all the falls. There is a trail of 10 falls, it's called, and you can actually see all 10 waterfalls. And so we're on this hike, and it got to some places. I mean, check out what I, look at the cargo I'm carrying. Can I, can I get a little bit of a kudos from you guys for carrying Karis on my back? I mean, she is not light, man. That kid, and, and oh my goodness, the, that, my, my kids eat so much food. They're like, eat me out of my house, dude. But anyway, so we're hiking along, and it's slippery, and it got to the point where it's like, man, we hoped to go see all these waterfalls. It's just not going to happen. And so we had to cut our hike short. We weren't able to see all the hikes or all, all the falls. Consider some other uses of our word hope. We say things like, man, I hope my kids sleep through the night. And if you're a young parent in here, you get what I'm talking about. Or you say things like, man, I hope I can pay my mortgage this month because this inflation is no joke. I don't know if I can make it. Or you say things like, man, I hope this relationship works out better than the last one. And still yet, man, I hope that this new job, I hope this one finally fulfills me. I wonder how much of our hopelessness is actually due to us putting our hope in people or in things that never actually had the capacity to deliver in the first place. I'm going to kill this buzz a little bit. I just wonder if that's the case. Now, I bet none of us have ever asked that, asked that hypothetical question before. Um, but if you have, I'm reminded of the words of 17th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal. Hang on a second. Yes, I can geek out a little bit. Don't worry. I don't read philosophy like all the time. If you do, that's cool. But this was a quote that came to mind as I was just thinking about how much hopelessness is in our world right now. How much hopelessness maybe is even represented in this room right now. I believe Pascal put it this way. He said, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known 
through Jesus Christ. Sit on that quote just for a moment. Was he on to something? Now, I don't know what it was like growing up in 17th century France, but I do know what it's like growing up in 21st century Portland. So many pictures of hopelessness are around us, are they not? The countless tents and RVs around our city, needles in our public restrooms, the opiate crisis on the rise, suicide stories all too common, the pseudo-gospels of sex, money, and materialism leaving people bankrupt, even more so empty than when they started down these paths. Have we lost our way to hope? My goodness, are we trying to cram a round peg in a square hole, as it were? Are we still trying to fill the God-shaped hole of our hearts with something other than God, I wonder? By the way, for those of you joining us today, either in person or online and you're new, man, welcome here, welcome home. But I should mention, we're a real church. We talk about real stuff because we serve a real God who loves real people and offers real change. And all my people said, amen. Amen. The reality is, guys, if we're honest, we've all experienced some tremendously hard things over the past several years that's left maybe many of us here just barely holding on to any glimmer or semblance of hope. My question to you now, how full or how empty is your hope, your hope tank? You see, as a dad, it's super important to me that when I tell my daughter Karis something like, hey, Karis, we're going to go to the park today. Like, we actually go to the park. Or when I say to my almost 10-month-old son, Charlie, hey, dude, I know you've been in that diaper for a little bit too long. A new one's coming, man. I'm grabbing for that size 3 diaper and that bag of wipes soon. Right? Here's my commitment to you this morning and why I would encourage you to listen in. I really want you to walk away from this place with some good news. And not a fairy tale, wishful thinking, maybe I hope this is good news, but a, wow, that's true. That's real. That can change up and mold up and shape up my life kind of news. So here it is in its simplest form, guys. The good news of Jesus' resurrection from the dead offers you, it offers me a living hope. The good news of Jesus' resurrection from the dead is that it offers you and it offers me a living hope. And with that, if you have Bibles this morning, if not, that's fine. The text will be up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 10 is we're going to be camping out in. Now, for those of you who are newer to the Bible, welcome home. One of the things that gets me pumped as a pastor is when people are like, wait, Corinthians? What the, what's a Corinthians? I'm like, yes. We're here to partner with people to grow in faith at whatever age and stage you are in your journey towards Jesus. And to put it simply, 1 Corinthians, it's a letter written in the first century, so super long time ago, by a guy named Paul to a church at the historic metropolitan city of Corinth. Our modern day city of Portland actually mirrors the historic city of Corinth in a lot of ways. Like Portland, Corinth was a port city and thus a major epicenter of goods and trade and idea. It was highly pluralistic, a melting pot of belief systems, cultures, religious thought, and philosophies. And yet there was one thing that I would beg to say that Corinth didn't have 
that Portland does. And that's really, really good coffee. Because we got us some good coffee here. Amen? Amen. But hey, you can't have it all, right? So if you're new here today and you're a little bit skeptical of the resurrection of Jesus, you're in good company. The people living in Corinth at this time were as well. You see, the Corinthians, they were down with the idea, the experience of resuscitation, same body, same life brought back. They could grasp that one. Picture that dramatic car accident which sent that poor innocent life to the hospital. The ER staff start working on them. They flatline, pads come out, CPR compressions, they come back to life. Resuscitation. Old life revived back to life. Or think of that young teen that gets swept away into the current of that strong river and is rescued by the skilled lifeguard and revived by mouth-to-mouth CPR. Or think of John's gospel account of when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. Or yet when also Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. These are all examples of resuscitation. Same life, same body brought back to life. And while resuscitation is most certainly a miracle in and of itself, the resurrection is on a whole new level. New life given exchange for the old. New life given in exchange for the old. As far as I can tell, Jesus is the only one in human history so far who's actually experienced this. And like Paul would say later on in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is the first fruits of more to come. Just like when the tulips start popping up out of the ground and then we have snow. What's that about? Raise your hands if you were praying for snow. None in here? Okay, because I got to find those people and put them on my prayer list because that, 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 that threw me for a loop. But here's the reality. The resurrection is hard to believe, but it's true. It happened. You see, it was popular belief in Jesus' time that there was no life after death. And adhering to this belief meant that really the goal of this life was to basically eat, drink, be merry, because in the end, it all just kind of goes away. There's no intrinsic meaning to life. And yet there was another popular belief that was spreading and growing among a small, diverse minority of people who would later bear the label Christian who claimed that there is life after death. And the proof text, the case point, the trump card of that was the empty tomb. Jesus was no longer there. Oh, they put him there, but he's not there. He is risen. He is alive. Now, if you're going to teach the resurrection, you better have one to back it. And they did. And so what does this scripture, this 1 Corinthians 15, actually have to tell us about the resurrection of Jesus? is what happened 2,000 years ago, really good news here and today. Because the good news of Jesus' resurrection means at least three things for us that can be summed up with the words, belong, believe, become. Say it with me. Belong, believe, become. Belong. The resurrection of Jesus offers us hope that there's a multi-ethnic, multi-generational family of faith called the church. That's welcoming you to join. We don't want visitors. <laughs> we want to see this family grow. The second thing is believe the resurrection of Jesus offers us good news that the promised Savior of the world is inviting all to believe 
in him for the forgiveness of sins and for relationship with him. Believe. Belong. The resurrection of Jesus offers us good news that his grace can be applied to our lives, making us to become more like him. Belong. Believe. Become. Let's dive into Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. It'll be on the screen. Belong to the Jesus community. Paul's words. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news that I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message that I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. You see, Paul is sharing good news to who he calls brothers and sisters, not in the biological nuclear family sense, but in the spiritual family of God sense. There's a family of faith in Corinth inviting any and all to join to be part of it. And this same good news we are here announcing today, that there's a family of faith here in Portland, Oregon, the 21st century, 2022, inviting you to belong to. Now, when you hear gospel, you might think of maybe like that genre of music, gospel music, or that 1970s-ish Broadway production, they called it Godspell, or even the first four books of the New Testament we call the Gospels. Yet the gospel that Paul is referring to is actually a story rooted in the life of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection from the dead. And gospel literally means good news. These brothers and sisters at Corinth, the family of faith, they had received the gospel, Paul said. They believed in it. They made it applied to their heart. They let it change them. And they were saved by this gospel, Paul says. In another one of Paul's letters to the Christians at the ancient church in Rome, he makes this comment about the gospel that I think is also worth mentioning here. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ, it is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, first for the Jew and also for the Gentile. You see, the good news of Jesus, church, is that we can be saved from our sins, but he don't just stop there. For relationship with God. The family of faith, then, is this ongoing manifestation of God's saving work in the world as he continues to bring people out of darkness and out of hopelessness into light and into hope and into new life. This is the gospel we proclaim today. And what makes this gospel unique is that it is literally the power of God at work. That is, in announcing the good news, like we've been doing all morning so far, God uses it to speak to human hearts like yours and mine. Maybe you feel something stirring and you're like, man, I need that. I want that. God uses the gospel to lead broken, sinful people like myself back to him. God is infinite love, justice, goodness, truth, and beauty. All this and so much more. Which leads us now to a question. Have you in your life ever had a life-changing moment? A life-changing moment. For some of you, it was when you said the I do and got married. 
Or maybe it was when you made that big move to the new city or when you came home with your very first baby and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm responsible to keep this little human alive. How does this work? Life-changing moments. These examples, of course, are positive life-changing moments, but they aren't all positive, are they? There's some negative ones. That traumatic event, that devastating diagnosis, that tragic accident, that moment they walked away. Man, we're all too acquainted with the fact, are we not? That with life, the positive and negative life-changing moments do just that. They change us. They affect us in a deep way. You're never the same. And I bring this up simply to say the gospel changed Paul's life. When Jesus showed up, it was a life-changing, watershed moment that changed him forever. If we were to break down and distill it to its simplest form, what is this gospel exactly that Paul preached, that he shared, that we're sharing today? We'll move on, verses 3 through 9 of the same passage. Believe the gospel of Jesus, Paul's words, verse 3. I, Paul, passed on to you, the Corinthians, what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. And last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I, Paul, also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way that I persecuted God's church. You see, in Paul's summary of the gospel, he basically lays out four elements. Number one, Christ died for our sins. Sin is the junk drawer word that followers of Jesus use to describe the different manifestations of brokenness in relationships. Brokenness in relationship between us and God us and other people, us and ourselves, and us and creation. And Jesus stepped in to our place, into our world, and took the place and the punishment for our sin. Some critics, critics of, of the resurrection suggest that Jesus never actually died. And yet, the reality is, if you look in historical records, there was never, as far as we know, of historical records, a crucifixion that ever ended in anything other than death. Rome was really good at killing people. Jesus died. We kind of chuckle at that, but it's true. Rome was really good at killing people. The second piece of the gospel, Christ was buried. When you read the accounts of Jesus' burial, you find out that it was a borrowed tomb and that it was guarded by Roman centurions. But he didn't stay there for long because three days later, number three, Christ raised from the dead. Some other critics of the resurrection say that the empty tomb meant, well, grave robbers, of course. And again, possible, but highly unlikely, given the fact that a Roman seal was placed across the tomb, symbolically saying, touch this body, become as this body. Again, point number one, Rome was really good at killing people. <laughs> And the reality is, church, this is why we're here today, announcing the fact that Jesus did not stay in the tomb, but he rose again to new 
life, defeating sin, defeating the grave, defeating the enemy, and being the first fruits for us. The fourth element of the gospel, Christ appeared to hundreds of people. Some other critics of the resurrection would say, well, those were just mere hallucinations. Like they were just tripping up on some, some shrooms or psilocybin or whatever they had back then. And this is certainly true. I mean, hallucinations are a thing that happens, but mass hallucinations are not. Did you read Paul's words? He was seen by some 500 people at one time. Hallucinations are a thing. Mass hallucinations are not a thing. And what's more, Paul writes that most of those people were still alive when he wrote this letter. You know how we're in a culture of fact-check moments, right? They had their version back then. As this letter was circulating, if the resurrection did not happen, those people would have been like, no, Paul, that's bogus. But here we are today. We still have the letter. It's 2,000 years later in modernity in Portland, Oregon, reading this letter. Church, Jesus rose from the dead. And it's also worth mentioning, I think, that all of the disciples, with the exception of John, were martyred for faith. They were literally killed for their faith. I'm not sure of anyone who'd be willing to die for a lie. So church, according to Paul, according to the good news of Jesus, he died, he was buried, he rose again, he appeared to hundreds of people. And this good news was according to the scriptures. Did you catch that phrase? Paul used it twice. According to the scriptures. You see, Paul's referring to the larger story of scripture we as followers of Jesus call the Bible. That in the words of Tim Mackey is one unified story leading to Jesus. And if I was to give you like the TED Talk version, the distilled, break it down, Reader's Digest version of the whole story of scripture that points to Jesus, it would unfold in seven movements from Genesis to Revelation, and it would go something like this. Number one, creation. In the beginning, God created literally everything, light and sky, ground and water, bugs and animals, and at the pinnacle of his creation, he created human beings, you and I, in his image. You and I have an intrinsic value that sets us apart from all the created order because God breathed his breath of life into us and gave us capacity to make real choices. Movement two, the fall. The story quickly takes a twist. When the very first humans, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, they ate fruit from the one tree. God said, don't touch it. And this introduced the very first sin in the world and the very first break of relationship between humanity and God, humanity with others, within self and creation. Remember, sin equals break in relationship. And this was the first domino of many subsequent dominoes that have actually rippled all the way into our current moment that we would explain all evil, suffering, injustice, and evil back to that very first sin and break of relationship. But then in steps movement three, hope. Even in our darkest moment, God offered a glimmer of hope. The very first mentioning of the gospel, the good news that God would send a rescuer shows up in Genesis 3.15 about how one day God would send a rescuer, a savior to crush the head of the serpent that is Satan. Hope already offered in the darkest moments. Movement four, Israel. The rest of that Old Testament story leading up to Jesus could be summarized by the phrase, epic fail. Just read it, right? 
Israel's best intentions to live good, moral, upright lives kept falling short because of this disease of a condition called sin that manifested itself sometimes in lust or greed or murder, but sometimes in more subtle ways like bitterness or resentment or fear. Movement five, Jesus. It became painstakingly clear as we read the Old Testament that by the time Jesus comes on the scene, humans are in trouble in need of a savior. And this is precisely when Jesus came on the scene and the gospel of Jesus, the good news is that Jesus died in our place. He took our death and gave us life. He took our punishment and gave us pardon. He took God's wrath and gave us grace. And his resurrection is the first fruits, the promise that through faith in him, we too can have life. Movement six, the church. Jesus forms a multi-ethnic, multi-generational family of faith around his finished work on the cross to be the primary vehicle to bring heaven on earth. Hence, we're here today. And last, movement seven, new creation. Jesus' resurrection points to the fact that the final restoration of all things is not yet to come, yet is to come. The story of scripture. By way of review, the good news, belong to the Jesus community. Believe in Jesus, the Savior of the world, just as the scripture said. And then lastly, number three, become like Jesus. Become like Jesus. Verse 10, 1 Corinthians 15. But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special, special favor onto me and not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I, but God working through me by his grace. Here's where the gospel moves from abstract idea to a personal game changer, from a mere historical event to a present reality. The gospel changes lives. It changed Paul's life. It changed my life. Talk to anyone who's been, been around you for a while. It has changed our lives. Why? Because the gospel is an invitation to relationship. And relationships change us. Think of when you became a parent, how much your life changed overnight. Or when you got married or you started that internship, you had that new boss, or you forged that key friendship. Just as relationships with people change us, so relationship with God through Jesus changes us. His passion is to make us like him. Our old, beat up, broken, battered ways made new because of his grace. For clarity here, the transformation that we're talking about is way less about outward appearances, like adhering to a fitness program or jumping onto that latest paleo diet or receiving Botox treatments or whatever. The transformation that Paul is talking about here is an inward one. God changes hearts. The way that the prophet Ezekiel put it in chapter 36 is that God replaces an old stony heart with a soft one. Or in the words of, of David in, in the Psalms chapter 51, God gives us a clean heart, replacing it of what was our old dirty heart. Jesus knows all too well that mere behavior, alteration, modification, legislation, they just don't deal with the root issue, which is sin he is done with on the cross. Jesus knows that when we become new people on the inside, it'll launch us onto a trajectory of becoming new people in every way. 
outside. So how does this happen? We use the word repent. Repentance really has three movements to it. Repentance is the oops, the awareness of I've messed up. God, forgive me. Number two is where grace takes in. And then number three, a commitment to grow. And this is where transformation happens. The oops, God, I've goofed it. I'm sorry. I commit to change. And in this loop of repentance, as we own our goof up before God, we receive his grace. It begins to change us. For followers of Jesus, this is really less about steps to complete and more like disciplines or practices to do. We call these spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices, and they're literally things that we do in the active sense or abstain from in the passive sense that help us foster our relationship with Jesus. Some disciplines of, of engagement are things like prayer and service and Bible reading. Some disciplines of absent, abstinence are, are things like fasting, where you abstain from food, or, or silence, where you abstain from just the noise and the distraction that's around us, or, or Sabbath, where we actually abstain from work to rest. And these practices, they're really empty if not joined with God's grace. And with that, we turn to the outlandish claim of the gospel, which is that God offers us grace through faith in Jesus. New Testament and Pauline scholar John Barclay makes this following comment about grace that I think is worth mentioning here. And this is my paraphrase of his words. He says, grace is God's gift, not on the basis of our works. Yes. And Western culture has added another element here. No strings attached. But Paul thought just the opposite. For Paul, the purpose of grace, of the gift, was to establish a relationship. And while Western thought views grace very much as transactional, Jesus takes our sin, we take his gift. God views it as an invitation to relationship. God is inviting you and I into relationship with him. And it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. He welcomes you right where you are. And he doesn't want to just give you a check the I accept Jesus box on the welcome home card you got when you entered here today. But he actually wants to journey with you forever, starting here and now. He wants to change your life. He wants you to know him deeply. That vacuum in your heart that we've already talked about, that you've tried to cram so much other thing and people's in to fill, and it's just not working he says, let me fill that place in your heart that only I can fill. Let me change you. Think of it this way. Grace is a gift given, not an award earned. Unlike the MVP award you received in Little League or in basketball in high school or whatever, grace is way more like that Amazon package that showed up on your front porch that you got from a friend for no other reason other than they really care for you and the desire to continue that relationship with you. So you open that little Amazon box, and you find out, oh my goodness, how much packaging can they put in this thing? And once you get through all the packaging there, you find this gift. And the value of that gift just communicates love and acceptance like you wouldn't believe. And then you have this question yet still unanswered. Why? Why did they send this to me? It's not my birthday for like five more months. It's not Father's Day. Like, why did they send this to me? At the bottom of that box was a little card. And it just says on it, because 
you're awesome. Because you're awesome. Now, for the record, I've never received such package. I wouldn't be opposed to it either, though. But the reality is, church, just hang with that picture for a moment. God gives grace and gift of himself freely as a way to establish relationship. Good news, church. There's a family of faith to belong to, the people in this room. There's a Savior to believe in. He's here with us today. He is risen, and there's power and grace to become like Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to wrap up our worship service at this time. But I just want to try and break this down into super just like tangible, practical, accessible, like, what do I do with this? Like, awesome, that's great, the good news, belong, believe, it, it, okay, but what now? And simply put, the invitation right now, church, for you here today, you would say, you know what? Me and God, we haven't been so close. <laughs> We've been a little distant, I would even say. I don't really know where he's at. But today, like, like I want to follow him. Like, if this is really true, if the gospel of Jesus is really true and he's really risen and he really wants to establish this relationship with me, like, like I want to know more. I want to give my life to Jesus. If that's you today, I'm going to have the worship team, they're, they're going to sing one last song. And at the end of this song, I'm going to invite us all just to close our eyes. And for, for those here who would say, I'm ready to take the next step in following Jesus and putting my faith in him, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. That's it. Hey, thanks for joining us. Our passion is to know and share God's heart, and we're so glad that we we're able to do that with you today. If you'd like to visit us in person, please visit our website at www.columbiaview.org for directions. We'll see you next time.